Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. Today's episode is dedicated to the musical legacy of Jimi Hendrix, 50 years after his passing. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to check out any of our other content that's not featured, head over to nam.org library. Hey, you guys, this is really an exciting podcast. I'm really, uh, really excited about this one. Been looking forward to hanging out with you guys virtually, uh, but also with this particular topic. You know, Jimi Hendrix has been called the first guitar hero, a, a legend. I mean, uh, one of the greatest guitarists ever, one of the greatest uh, rock performers ever. And, you know, when we are digging into some of the research of his career and his life, I think he deserves all of those things and probably about 10 other things. Uh, just every title you can think of, I think, should be bestowed upon someone who 50 years after their passing, we're still talking about with great respect and our jaws still drop when we listen to a song that we've heard a thousand times. I mean, that has got to tell you something about the impact, creativity, and just amazing skills that this guy had. And so what's really neat is that over the last 20 years or so, while we've been collecting interviews for the NAM Oral History Program, we have bumped into a few people who either worked with him, knew him, played with him, or were greatly influenced by him. And so that's what we're doing today for this podcast is we're putting all that together to say, here are some unique stories about him that maybe you haven't heard before, but all in reverence of this amazing, phenomenal career that we still look at and are still inspired by. Definitely inspired by, I'm, I mean, I don't think you could talk to any guitarist that, and they wouldn't list Hendrix somewhere in their list of that. Uh, and it's just amazing too for how short, unfortunately, how short his career was, just how in, like impactful he was and just what he was able to accomplish. And, you know, listening to these interviews, you find out that, you know, yeah, he was talented and he, did so much, but he was also a really great guy and really loved music and, you know, wanted to just do all this experimenting with it and was, you know, just gun ho about the whole thing. And it's just great to kind of hear a full, a full story about, about Jimmy and not just, um, the great guitarist that we all know already. <laughs> so we have quite the lineup for you today. We're going to be hearing from Billy Cox, Seymour Duncan, Eddie Kramer, Mike Finnegan, Tony Lauscher, and Stuart Spector. And to start things off, we're going to hear from someone who actually played with Jimmy, and that is Billy Cox. He's going to be talking about his time in the Army, meeting Jimmy, and the highlights of playing with him. I had been on post maybe almost a year, maybe. 
And I was, it was raining, we ran for cover, wound up on the doorstep of service club number one, at which time the window was up about that uh, high. And I heard this playing coming out of it. And it's in its infancy. So I turned to the guy and he said, that's pretty unique, isn't it? He said, it sounds like a bunch of mess. And I think it did sound like a bunch of mess to him. I won't use the adjective that he described it with, but uh, to me, it was, it was calling me in. So I went and introduced myself and here's this little bald-headed kid just trying to play guitar. His name was Jimi Hendrix. And I told him, I said, you know, I play a little bass. I said, I'm not that good. But he said, well, they got these new electric basses. You turn in your service card and you can rent a bass and an amp. Come on, we can jam. I said, OK. And that was it. That was the beginning of something. And uh, so I stuck with that. And so they say fate are the cards you dealt to birth. But destiny is what you do with those cards. And not only you grab that destiny and you apply uh, grit, the power of passion and perseverance. And I saw it work with Jimmy and I followed suit. I terminated my jump status and became the manager of a service club number two. I did a lot of wheeling and dealing. It cost me 50 bucks and two-fifths of Canadian club. <laughs> and so that afforded us the opportunity to rehearse every day. He was just a peon in his outfit, but I had to give up 55 extra dollars a month because I no longer was under jump status. I had to work that out with a colonel and some sergeants and everything. So I wound up in special services. And that's what we did until up to the time we got discharged. And the rest is history. <laughs> And what bass were you playing? Did, did you have to give that bass back? Oh yeah, well they they had some, uh, the ones there, but I really went and bought me one at Collins Music Store in Clarksville. But uh, yeah, so What did you buy there? I bought that, my uh, uh, Fender bass, and uh, I tried to buy one in Pittsburgh, I brought that up. I washed dishes all for that summer, but I just didn't make enough money. To, even back then, that bass was about 280 or well, close to 300 bucks. So I lost that, never thought about it anymore. So I wound up in the service. So I had the money then because uh, I was a loan shark and a lot of other things in the military. So uh, that's the same base that followed me to, 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 to Nashville yeah, when I came here. That's fantastic. Yeah, it was great. What are some of the highlights for you playing with Jimmy? Highlights? Man, of course, Woodstock, the Isle of Wight. Out of Vermont, Atlanta. He was top draw at that time. He was the king of the guitar. And it was great to know that I was a part of that. The power of the, the spoken word, constantly he kept saying, we're gonna make it. I'm gonna make it. You're gonna make it. We're gonna be big. And he kept saying, I laughed at that because, you know, but he believed that with all his heart and soul and he made it a reality. And so be it, it became a reality. And then, uh, so after he went on and did his stuff, uh, well, we were here in town 
I'll take you back. We were here in, in town and we had a little group and worked all around the area. And we, there weren't that many bands anyhow, so we, 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 we pretty well, well always had a job. Um, but uh, various groups came through here, like uh, the story of uh, Jackie Wilson and Sam Cooke. Uh, after we had finished our gig, we found out that Jackie Wilson and Sam Cooke, you know, word got around in the area. They're going to go down to the Barron Club. So we went down to Barron, we hung out, and pretty soon they came in with their entourage. And when they hit the stage to sing, the band that was on, on stage wasn't too sure about, and I, there was a little commotion. So Jimmy ran up real fast because he always had his guitar. Wherever he went, he had that guitar. He never put that guitar in the case because he always wanted to keep practicing wherever he went. He'd walk up the street playing, watch a movie, playing, come out of the theater, going back to his place, playing the guitar. It became a part of his, uh, his life, and it was his life. So anyhow, we got up on stage, and uh, I forget, uh, I think, uh, Bring It Off Home to Me and some other songs he did just a collage of two or three songs. But we were playing because the other band wasn't too sure, and they were glad to get off stage. And, you know, these big guys, for that day and time, they were humongous stars. And uh, so after everything was over, they turned and said, who are you guys? How do you know all these stuff? You know? <laughs> and so they, you know, I, well, maybe you need to talk to our manager over there, because I guess probably they wanted to uh, probably take us on the road, because we were that good at that time, but we had some other plans. But I think Jimmy was a little hesitant. He, you know, but I don't think he approached, wanted to get into that right then. But maybe, I think maybe about a year later, he, uh, wanted to move on to do some stuff because he saw himself in the future. And he, so to make a long story short, I had joined up with some other guys and I said, look, I'll join up with you, me and the drummer and all that. I said, but for one, if you, if you I was pretty decent on bass, so I could threaten them. And I said, now, I'll, I'll join up with you, but when Jimmy gets out of a job and comes home, uh, he's got to have, a, you got to have a spot for him. So, okay, we'll do that. He did that about three or four times. In and out, in and out, in and out, searching for his destiny. And this last time I got a phone call from him, he says, man, I'm saying, this guy's going to take me, this man, this girl's going to take me to Europe and make me a star. And I told him about you. You know, and I thought about that. I've told so many lies about this, but the truth is, well, I, well, I wasn't a lie, I just didn't tell the whole story. Uh... He said, and I want you to go. And I thought about that for that moment. I said, Jimmy, I'm uh, renting a amp. I still got my bass, but it's got three strings on it. The, the fourth one, four strings tied in a square knot. He says, you're a liar. <laughs> I said, yeah, I said, would you go ahead and you make it? Because I knew that possibly. And I think this segregated thing that was going on in the world, I figured if I went as a possibility, me being black, he might not make it. But he did. He made it, you know, regardless of. He did real well. So I went on with my life. Enjoyed, did various things, and I finally had a publishing company and a, uh, on Music Row, and my friend had a studio in the back, and he had his office on the other side. Now they had a great relationship there with that 
and did some other things to make it, and I made do. And all of a sudden, I get this telephone call. I wound up talking to him when he came down to, to Memphis, and next thing you know, I'm in New York, and there it is. So. Unbelievable. Do you have any stories about his, uh, his guitar, memories of, uh, of what he played? Of what he played? Like the, the Fender and... He had a Dan Electro <clears throat> that had Betty Jean on it. And God, I was told, I said, if you ever found that guitar in Nashville, that'd be worth $5 million. I found out where it was. It, he had pawned it to the guy who owned the Del Morocco for about $150, something like that. And then he kept it because Jimmy didn't pay him back. He kept it at his house. And about four years later, that house burnt down. Whoa, whoa. Because I sometimes thought it was at Collins Music Store where we did our business in Clarksville. So I went down to Collins and uh, we looked up in the attic. We looked down in the garage in the basement for a whole Saturday. I had bib overalls on and never found it. And then it dawned on me there's a possibility. And I talked to some people and they told me, said, yeah, it was at Uncle Teddy's house. And that house burnt down. Mm. That's a story. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. All right. That was uh, Billy Cox from his NAM oral history interview from 2017, recorded at the uh, Nashville NAM show in the middle of the heat. And Mike was there. It was a really neat opportunity. Um, in, you know, when you sit toe to toe with somebody who played with Jimi Hendrix and knew him at the level that Billy did, it was really neat. I mean, I don't think either, either of us stopped smiling the whole time. It was like, wow. Okay. Wow. Okay. Wow. You know, the more he talked, the more I just kept thinking, this is a really unique and, and uh, special opportunity. It's quite a privilege. And he really rose to the occasion. What a very, very nice gentleman. Just very, well, you can tell by listening to him. You know, he was uh, very sincere and very humbled to be asked uh, to document his perspective. And it was a real honor for us to do that. So uh, that was uh, a great way to start off this podcast. And moving forward with this episode, we are going to hear from another really big name in music that you've definitely heard of if you've ever been inside a music store, and that is Seymour Duncan, the founder of Seymour Duncan Pickups. Um, such a cool dude. I, it's funny, growing up seeing that name on all the cases, like, you know the company, but I really didn't put two and two together that he was Seymour Duncan until I saw him at a NAMM show. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> He's going to be talking about uh, Jimmy showing him his Strat and a, a great story about Jimmy and a guitar that he received. I guess one of my big influences, you know, was, you know, Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, and Jeff Beck, you know. So having a chance back in Cincinnati, I had worked with Roger Mayer and I gave I made I did a bunch of rewinds and uh, Jimmy stuck him in his guitar when he was playing. He was playing with a Soft Machine. Remember that band? They were great. Uh, they did all the lights and I, I think it was I, I forget it was in a Greg Lake or somebody was in that band. But uh, seeing and talking to these people, you know, and, and just and Jimmy, you know, he would show me a strat and then he would hit it and then he would pluck the strings on the back of the body and he said, "Listen to this," you know, and he hit it. So hear that sound, and he would bring his tremolo down. Said, That's a cool sound, isn't it? 
like that. You know. And then he would like knock on the back of the guitar, and then uh, he used to twist the pick and, and put it between the two strings. Then he'd be bend it. These strings would be quiet, but he would bring the tremolo down, and he would do this real quiet thing. Then he would pull the pick up, and then it would like really pop loud. And then he would he would growl it, and he would do one of his dive bombs. So we were in the back room just doing that stuff. I mean, he was showing me all this stuff, and then. Uh, there was a group, a company, brought this guitar to Jimmy. It was all psychedelic painted, had flowers and all stuff on it. It was a semi-hollow body. It had split pickups with chrome covers on each one. It had push buttons to activate the pickups. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was funny, but Jimmy goes on, he goes out to do a sound check, and uh, this guitar is like squealing, like you know a cat has its run over by a rollerblade or something. But the pickups were feeding back so bad, he would hit it and go, woo, just by pressing the buttons now, and so he got a kick out of it. So I saw him, he put the guitar, the strap over one shoulder, and he faced the amp, and then he took that, he grabbed it by the neck, and he swung that thing as hard as he could, and he hit the Marshall amplifier, and that poor guitar went into like 8,000 pieces, man, I swear to God. And the guys that gave him the guitar were just saying, they just shook their head. They didn't know what to say. And they just said, oh, Jimi Hendrix, Jimi Hendrix. And they, they started clapping their hands. There was nothing they could do, but I felt so bad for them, you know. But nobody's ever seen that guitar, you know. And, uh, but he, he did a routine with it, and it was pretty amazing, you know, just what he did. But the guy was great. He really liked talking guitar. So I really was trying to get as much information uh, as I could from him, you know, and just about that and the sounds. and and what he would adjust his pickups, and I said, why you do that? You know, because, you know, kind of this, and you can see the pole here, and he played a left-handed guitar. You know, he played a right-handed guitar, but he, he played it left-handed. And then the pole pieces were in a different position on the string, and a different angle of the pickup would make it fatter sounding on the treble side, because you got a thicker sound out of it, and then it was a little bit brighter on the bottom side. So you could do that wind cries merry and just get, get all these different tones, you know. And he was really using the guitar, and I just, I always believed that. So, uh, so that was Seymour Duncan uh, talking a little bit about the pickups and just working with Jimmy and all of the uh, fancy finger work and pick work that he would do. Uh, <laughs> and a great story at the end there with, uh, with the guitar he was gifted. Um, but great story, and, uh, and I think now... Uh, we're listening to we're gonna listen to Eddie. Is that right, Mike? Yeah. Next up, we're gonna hear from the recording engineer that worked very closely with Jimmy, uh, Eddie Kramer. And a quick shout out to the NAM website. If you want to check out these full interviews, we actually have the full interview posted for Seymour Duncan and Eddie Kramer. You can head over to namnamm.org/library and find our full collection there. So here is Eddie Kramer talking about what it was like recording Jimi Hendrix. Well, Jimmy, uh, you know, I'd known about him, of course, you know, who didn't know about Jimmy Hendrix, you know, he'd come to England from America, Chaz had discovered him in New York, and brought him to London, and, um, you know, Jimmy was making a big splash in 66 when he arrived, There's this guy coming from America, blues, great blues player, and played left-handed, upside down behind his neck, played with his teeth, and everybody in town was coming to see him play at the clubs. The Beatles and Eric Clapton, and Clapton wanted to give up playing guitar because he said, that's it, I, ah, 
this guy, this is this is it. I mean, this guy is just a genius, you know, and he and he certainly was is. <laughs> um, so Jimmy had made um, that transition from New York to London with Chas Chanda. Um, recorded Hey Joe and a couple of other songs, but they went on the road. I mean, the band was only together for like a month and a half or so before they had their first gig in Paris. And like August or September, no, October of 66, I believe, in Paris at the Paris Olympia. The record blew up big, you know, and they recorded a few more tracks, but they had heard about Olympic which was about to open in January of 67, and they were one of the first clients, and that's how I got to work with him. Mm. And um, he was marvelous. He was just, we just hit it off right from the get-go. Um, he, he had this ability to be able to see the end product in his mind. He knew exactly where he was going with stuff. Uh, it was a revelation to me to hear this guy plugging into a Marshall amp and getting tones like I never heard before. And that was a challenge, trying to be able to capture that. But um, no, we hit it off great. And, and Chaz was amazing. He was a great producer. He really helped Jimmy focus on songwriting because a lot of stuff was covers initially. And then he kept saying, Jimmy, you got to write, you got to write. And that's when you know you would get the purple hazes and the foxy ladies and all that sort of stuff on the first record it's a very gritty first album i love that album and then each subsequent album axis became much more experimental instead of mono drums now it's stereo you know uh, but recording him was always i wouldn't even say a challenge it was always exciting because he was doing things that would just blow your mind. You'd go, wow, how did you do that? But you're so focused on trying to get, get the sound, you know. Mm. I only have four tracks. That's all I had. So we would go four to four, you know, we'd record stereo drums, two track, one bass track, one guitar track, take all of those and mix them in stereo to another half inch four track, fill the two remaining tracks with more stuff, more guitar, vocals, whatever. Take those four, mix that down in stereo to the, going back to the first machine and then adding more stuff. So sometimes you go four to four to four. So the noise level, of course, kept building up, but you had to get your mix correct. And that's the thing that you learn. You make the commitment now, as it's going down, you put the EQ in, the compression, the re everything's done. So you can't, you try not to make any damn mistakes because you'd have to then go back and redo, and that, that's a pain in the butt. So, yeah, it's a good training, and I try to tell kids today, listen, make the commitment. Don't print, you know, 68, 100 tracks on, in Pro Tools and then try to figure out what the hell you want to do with them. You'll never figure. You'll be there a month. So that's my philosophy. Commit. Yeah. Well, the EQ back then wasn't what it is now. I'm was that difficult? No, I think the EQ is very much what it is today. Hmm. It's, it, it may be not as uh, sophisticated, but certainly the EQ was wonderful. And the stuff that we had on the Helios was well, still people tr tr still trying to get that sound. Um, well, that's true. But I thought that would require some manipulation on your part to have that come across as clean as it did. 
Well, the machine did it, huh? No, I mean, the, the basic tone controls are similar to what we have here. Um, I, I, I think the sound of the console, uh, the mic pre's, the fact that it's got specific kind of transformer in it, um, had a unique sound to it. Um, that plus the fact that we had to make everything fit onto four tracks, make the commitments. Do you have any particular favorite memories of, of um, recording Jimmy? They're all great. I mean, <laughs> you know, over the last 20 years or so, I've been doing all this restoration work, and we pull up a Hendrix tape, and we hear him yakking in the studio to me or to Chaz or to the guys and cracking jokes, and he was just wonderful in the studio, funny guy. Great acerbic sense of humor, just loved to take the piss out of me and Noel and Mitch, and even himself. A lot of sort of self-deprecating humor. Mm. You gotta keep it light, you know, you gotta, yeah, otherwise it doesn't make much sense. So do you have any favorites that you did with him? That's tough to pick, I bet. It is. Little Wing stands out, obviously. I love that song. It's a ballad. It's so beautifully constructed and played and there's another example of where you know there's a bunch of instruments just lying around the studio and Jimmy said hey what's that that's a glockenspiel oh okay put the mic on run the tape ding ding all those beautiful little notes he played them he knew what he wanted you know there's a part on on uh, crosstown traffic there's this piano part that is predominantly part of the mix. Now, I was fooling around with these chords in the studio, and he came and said, hey, what's that, what's that, what's that, what's that? Uh, show me those chords. Oh, okay. You play it. And I said, no, 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 I don't want to play it. I'll show you the chords, you play it. So I showed him the chords, and he played it. Hmm. But they were the chords that I'd given him, so he just thought they were cool. You know, it augmented ninth chords and stuff. He used a similar one on, uh, it was Crosstown Traffic and, uh, what was the other one it was used on? Can't remember for now, but anyway. Yeah, he, he was very open to stuff, and he was like a musical sponge. I mean, if you heard a sound of a garbage truck going by, he would try to figure out how to incorporate it into his music. Well, you know, he was a paratrooper, right? And he did many jumps. Uh, he was 101st Airborne, and in fact, when you hear the later material, the stuff in late 69 uh, into 70, you know, when you had the Band of Gypsies, if you listen to that performance from the Fillmore East, where, you know, it's, he's so anti-war and so, you know, much anti the Vietnam War at that point. And Machine Gun, you hear this song called Machine Gun, and it's just terrifying. And it's got all these sounds of, war incorporated into his playing. Uh, I remember I went to his hotel room once to deliver a tape to him and I walked in and um, I was looking at the pile of discs and I said, wow, this is, this is a whole bunch of classical albums. I said, well, I didn't know you were into classical. Yeah, man, I get a lot of my inspiration from that, man, you know. <laughs> so yeah, he was, he was into classical and jazz. He loved, well, I mean, you can hear uh, the Wes Montgomery influence, uh, because Wes played octaves for his solos, um, and you can hear that a lot in Jimmy's playing. 
That's fantastic, yeah. Were you um, working with him at all in the, in the later part of his... I did all his albums. Yeah. Yeah, I started in the beginning in 67 and went all the way through. Mm -hmm. You know, we built Electric Lady, obviously, which was a big deal in 69. Uh, so that's when we started construction in the middle of 69. We didn't finish it till a year later. Well, you know, construction had to stop for various reasons, most of them financial. <laughs> And, you know, Jimmy had to go on the road and make money to pay for the construction. But it cost, in 1970, a million bucks, which was a lot of money in those days. Um, but we made that back in the first year, actually. We were incredibly busy. But he only got to record in Electric Lady Studios. It's funny how people always confuse Electric Lady Land and Electric Lady. They are two separate things. Um, he, we recorded him May, June, July, oh yeah, four months, May through August of 70. And he loved that studio. He was always, you know, it was the only time I ever saw him on time when he it was his studio, it was his baby, you know. We made that studio. What was unusual about it is that that studio was specifically designed for the artist. It was the first ever recording studio that had been designed for the artist. Nobody else, had, I think, in the world ever had one. He was the first. And it was, once again, a very advanced, it was 24 track for 1970, which was very, you know, cutting edge. Um, an amazing theatrical lighting system that washed the walls in different colors. And he was like, hey man, I want some of that purple. Yeah, on that wall. Okay, Jimmy. Um, and so we could create an atmosphere for him that made him feel comfortable. Mm. And it was, it, it was that, that studio turned the recording business on its ear because it was so revolutionary. And to this day, thank God, the place is still doing great business. It's slamming now. It's fabulous. I love that place. So yeah, um, what was your question? <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm just enjoying listening to you. <laughs> where where were you when you heard that he had died? At, well, actually, what? Let me see. It was September 17th, in 1970, and um, I think. I think I was at my apartment, and I didn't know about his passing. And I remember I, I walked downstairs to the lobby of the apartment building and opened up my mailbox, and there was my green card. And I was so happy. I've been waiting for this gre damn green card. Um, and um, jumped in a cab and went down to the studio, and I came downstairs. And What's going on? Everybody's crying. What, why, why is everybody crying? So you mean you don't know? And they told me it Jimmy had passed. Of course, it was a huge shock. And of course, all the television reporters and all that happened that day. It was, it was pretty bizarre. Um, and I remember um, Jack Holtzman, you know who he is, of course, uh, from Electra Records, because I think I was working with Carly Simon at the time. And he um, said, you, you got to get out of there. And they sent, sent a car, and we 
drove upstate and just I just chilled out for a few days. But then it took me a couple of months to get back into it to be able to go in and finish the record. We were making a record called The Cry of Love. And um, that, was, that, was a that was a tough call to make that work. Hmm. But, um, you know, the show had to go on. And, you know, the studio just kept growing. Uh, it was uh, not because he had died specifically, but because it was a damn fine studio. And of course, it had his name attached. And of course, when people wanted to work there, because it sounded good. Uh, and like I said, in the next year, we, we grossed a million dollars, which was a lot of money, once again, for those days. But then, you know, after like 1974, I said, eh, I don't want to do this anymore, running a studio. I got married and had kids and all the rest of it, and my, my career sort of started to change a bit. What great memories it is uh, listening to Eddie Kramer here uh, during the, uh, the podcast dedicated to the legacy of Jimi Hendrix. The perfect uh, segment, I think, of this, of this podcast for me. Eddie was uh, obviously a very important part of his career, but in addition to that, it's just really neat to hang out with somebody like Eddie, hear those stories and um, know that he was a part of it because he really had a sense that what he was doing was important. And I know that he worked really hard to understand all elements of each of the recording uh, equipment in each of the studios that he's ever been in uh, because he really wants to make the most out of the artist who is in front of him, no matter who it is. And I think that's why Eddie Kramer is Eddie Kramer, why he's a legend uh, among recording engineers and why he's had the opportunity to work with, I don't know, a few people you heard of, you know, the Beatles and David Bowie and Eric Clapton and Carlos Santana and the Rolling Stones and Kiss and Led Zeppelin and, oh, yeah, uh, Jimi Hendrix. So, <laughs> uh, absolutely phenomenal. The neat thing about Eddie to me, uh, is that he's always so approachable. I always appreciate it about him because you got to figure there's some crazy fans out there of all of the groups I just mentioned, not just one of them. And so at any given cocktail party or restaurant, you know, somebody's going to come up to him and ask him a question. And I really think that he has that same sensibility of being that kid from Cape Town, you know, of being polite and wanting to be helpful. And I think that that comes across in uh, his mannerisms even today. He, um, at the NAMM show, for example, I always see him talking to people very patiently and always posing for a picture, you know, taking the time that is needed. And that's, uh, that's admirable. Um, because, you know, he's not always at the NAMM show to hang out with fans. He's there to check out new equipment and new gear to better his own career. So, um, uh, kudos to him and, and his disposition and always with great gratitude my hands folded to say how grateful we are that he not only gave us one, but two interviews for the NAM Oral History Program. And then thinking about just his specifics with Jimmy. I mean, okay, he engineered um, Are You Experienced? Not a bad album. Um, <laughs> Access, Bold as Love, uh, Electric Ladyland, Band of Gypsies, 
uh, The Cry of Love, one of my favorites. And then all those, I think there are seven or eight posthumous albums of outtakes and various um, segments of tape that Eddie had over the years that put out these uh, fantastic records uh, after Jimmy passed away. And to that, I wanted to make a comment to all the uh, old people out there like me. Um, one of the things that we often say about the millennials, uh, uh, how accessible all this music is on the internet. I mean, they can just think of it and there it is and, it, and it's right there. And that is fantastic. And I'm very envious that I did not grow up learning music that way because I think that there's some major advantages. I did find finally, after thinking about it for a while, I finally found one advantage of being an old guy and listening to music the way we listen to it. And that was when a album would come out with something new, it was like a big deal, like this un uncovered, unreleased Jimi Hendrix uh, material. I remember there was a full song that, and I can't remember the name of the song, but there was a full song that was being hyped on the radio and it was their advertisements in the newspaper and people were talking about it at music stores. And it was like this big, big thing that was going to come up and happen. And now it's released. And I kind of feel bad for the people who ha don't have that anticipation of, wow, something different, something new from Jimi Hendrix all these years after he passed away. Because there is something extra special about hearing something and knowing we're listening to it for the first time that, you know... Uh, my my uncle heard Jimi Hendrix before I heard him, so I didn't hear any of the big stuff originally, but I did get to hear some of this unreleased stuff. And I, I don't know, I know that's a little, maybe it sounds a little silly, but there's something very special about hearing something and knowing, wow, it wasn't lost. You know, thanks to Eddie Kramer and the people who preserved that tape, uh, we're able to hear new things and hear something different and maybe learn something different. And maybe that song, unlike some others, inspired somebody in a different way. I mean, that's a super fantastic thing about uh, about that. So that th those are my thoughts. Rebuttals from the millennials. <laughs> I was going to say, as a reluctant millennial. <laughs> don't like that title, but I guess I technically am one. Uh, I will just say that I am incredibly jealous of the fact that we did not grow up with any of that great music and what I would give to have been there when it first got released and to be a part of that whole scene. I mean, there's nothing that can compare to that. So, you know, I'll gladly give away my ability to have access to all music if I were to be able to actually <laughs> experience when Jimi Hendrix and the Beatles and the Stones and all of them just released everything and everyone got to experience it at the same time. So much better. But I digress as well, I guess. <laughs> kind of going back into our podcast here, we're going to start, we're actually going to listen to now um, a really famed studio musician uh, that played the Hammond B3, uh, Mike Finnegan. And he's going to talk about his experience um, and time working in the studio with Jimmy. And he actually does throw out a name that might sound familiar to you, uh, Eddie Kramer. We might have just listened to him as well. Uh, <laughs> but he's just going to talk about the observations that he made uh, 
while in the studio with Jimmy and just some of the good lessons that he kind of learned and absorbed from him. So uh, here is Mike Finnegan. I was playing with the Shirts. We, we finally got a record deal. We had been playing in New York City and got discovered, you know, by this producer named Tom Wilson who had produced Bob Dylan and a lot of people. He was, a, like a, he was an anomaly, too, because he was the first or one of the first black record company executives. He had a big job. Uh, I can't remember what company he worked at for a while. but And then he became an independent producer. But he was an Ivy League educated guy, real smart, kind of, and kind of an unusual, you know, little off the beaten path dude, you know, not, not you know, a squared up guy. But uh, he signed us. And while we were doing our album, he made a little jive deal with us for Capitol Records. And, and um, while we were recording that at the record plant in New York City, I met Jimi Hendrix and wound up preparing on one of his albums, on Electric Ladyland. And two of the other guys in the band, and our, the band The Surfs also, the tenor player and, and percussionist, played on that track too. We played on the, uh, this big jam track that he cut up into two pieces and wrote lyrics to, uh, Rainy Day and Still Raining, Still Dreaming. So. You know, in 1969, I'm I'm on Jimi Hendrix's latest album. My pe the people I knew back home were like, "Man, we knew you were good," you know, but now this proves it. You know, <laughs> like we all knew you were good, baby. You know, what were you playing on that? The Hammond? Hammond, yeah. Yeah, and I was playing almost exclusively Hammond organ at that time. I didn't play anything else live. I saw, and I was playing foot pedals. Of, most of the time there until the last two or three years. Do you have any good uh, Jimi Hendrix stories? What was that experience well, I got, like? Well, I got, well, it was a great experience. Obviously, I mean, the, the guy was one of the most important innovators of that period, certainly. Still, you know, he left a huge footprint and has influenced so many guitar players. It was like, he just happened to be working in, at the record plant at the same time we were. We were working there like from like 10 in the morning till five at night or something and he was coming in around that about you know 5 30 or something usually and getting ready and and he was making the album uh with just himself and the drummer the bass player noel redding wasn't there it was mitch mitchell and and jimmy they were doing making rhythm tracks with just guitar and drums very painstakingly i was i didn't know anything about record production as such and i still don't know that much but you know, watching how he worked as opposed to how we were making our record, which ours was being done on the cheap, but most of it was done live with all of us, you know, I mean, we were all playing and there were some live vocals on some of the tracks and and um, he was like building rhythm tracks with, of course it was a different kind of band. Our band had trumpet and tenor and organ, guitar and drums and percussion. So, and even vibes, we had a vibe player for a while, a guy that was going to replace our drummer and after he got up and he was a vibe player and piano player and drummer from North Texas State University and after he played with us for the, while he was learning the book the drummer said well I think I'll stay so all of a sudden we're like well we can't send this guy he dropped out of North Texas State man you know so I guess he's in the band but we weren't making this different, same kind of album at all we were more doing like kind of rock and roll straight ahead rhythm and blues and Jimi Hendrix was doing something nobody had ever heard, you know. And 
he just asked us, he just said, hey, I like, I, he heard us playing one day, he came in and said, I want you to stay, you know, and play with me. Because he wanted to do something with organ, like with the whole idea of like the organ trio kind of thing, like the Jimmy Smith situation where he had like, he'd have like organ and Donald Bailey on drums and Kenny Burrell on guitar and Stanley Turrentine playing tenor and sometimes Ray Beretta playing kunga. So we had this a really great percussionist and a great tenor player and I played organ and Jimi Hendrix was like, yeah, I want to try something like that. Of course, it didn't come out anything like what a Jimmy Smith album would have sounded like, but it had those elements. And, you know, what happened was interesting because I, I played organ bass on the track and, and uh, it was like very spontaneous. Buddy Miles played drums on it. And he, he was from Omaha, so we knew Buddy. He was a young phenom and had, um, uh, had played in a band called The Stragglers. Great singer, great drummer, and he was hanging out, making his mark, you know. Buddy, would, he could barge into anywhere in those days, you know, like, hey, I'm on the scene, let me be in. And, so, and he was a great shuffle player, and that's what these tunes were. They were like a Texas shuffle kind of, you know, that, you know, and, you know, we just kind of mapped it out, you know, talked over some ideas and then started it one time and it kind of get, fell apart and then we started it again and went top to bottom. And, you know, there were like these little sections that we'd kind of agreed on that we worked out in advance, but it was mostly really spontaneous and you know, it was like a, a really a thrill to, to be around him because he was such a, a genius, you know, and such a, like I said, such an innovator and had such a, a, a huge effect on so many guitar players and on, you know, the music, on popular music in general. He had a, a big effect. He had a great guy, Eddie Kramer, that was the engineer. But, you know, he, Eddie and he, Eddie was great for Jimmy because you know, especially since I knew so little and hadn't seen that much, later on it served me well to see how Jimmy was like demanding of like, this is what I'm, I'm not hearing what I want. And Eddie's willingness to try to, you know, do something about that by changing microphones or changing placement, trying a different amp, you know, different things that he would, you know, he was making an effort. They were working together to to find, you know, the kinds of sounds Jimmy was looking for, not only with the guitar, but with the drums and other instruments, too. He had, you know, definite ideas. He was plugged into that. He wasn't um, simply a musician, you know, I'm putty in your hands, turn on the machine, you know. Uh, he was in, involved in the whole recording process, and that taught me a lot. I mean, it taught me that, you know, like you're not, you know, if you're working with the right people, it's possible to, you know, find, you know, the make help find the kind of sounds you're looking for. So once again, that was Mike Finnegan talking about meeting Jimi Hendrix and what it was like playing with him. Um, coming from another millennial in the room, <laughs> in the virtual room, I guess. Um, yeah, it's a bummer that you know I never got to see 
Jimmy or any of the acts associated with him or anything like that, but there were plenty of people that did get to see Jimmy live, and we're going to hear from two of them now. Uh, Tony Lauscher, the founder of Luthier's Workshop, and after him, Stuart Spector, the founder of Spector Bases. They're going to be talking about what it was like to see Jimi Hendrix live. The main influence really uh, initially was the Beatles, I think, and the British Invasion, and uh, for me, the, the changer, though, was uh, I had the opportunity to actually see Jimi Hendrix here in, in town. Um, that would have been uh, 1970 at the sports arena. That's kind of a life changer, game changer for me. What do you remember about that? Uh, you, you know, quite a bit, actually, besides the fact that, that his presence was, was so overwhelming and the music, of course. Uh, but. Uh, I think it was almost uh, simu- simultaneous that I fell in love with the guitar at the same time because he played that upside-down left-handed, or actually upside-down upside Stratocaster, and it had all the curves and, and shapes that uh, it, it was so mysterious and beautiful. Uh, so it was uh, intriguing, and from that moment, I think I was hooked. Yeah. So was it like a totally crazy um, audience? I mean, was everybody going wild, or was it? No, it was. Uh, he was just mesmerizing. It was like, um, it was different than I expected. It really was because by the time I had actually uh, arrived at that that particular concert, you know, he had already set fire to guitars and smashed them up, and we were kind of expecting that, I think. But uh, to have him so really subdued and and. Uh, it was, uh, it was really beautiful, actually, for me. And this is one of my favorite rock and roll stories. I had a high school band called The Lost Chords, which was very aptly named. And we stole the name from an older brother's drum and happened to have that painted on it or something. But anyhow, Pete Servant, who was in the band with me, one of my high school buddies, who unfortunately has passed away, uh, he and I went to the Schaefer Music Festival in Central Park where you could buy tickets for one or two dollars outdoor in the what was the skating rink in the winter and we had bought tickets to see Lou Rawls opening up for the Young Rascals a good show especially for a dollar we had bought the balcony tickets for a dollar anyhow we got there and the announcer said ladies and gentlemen I'm sorry to tell you that Lou Rawls has laryngitis instead tonight we have a new act from England please welcome the Jimi Hendrix experience well, I had, by coincidence, bought the first Jimi Hendrix album at my local record store 24 hours before, been playing it nonstop, and Pete and I jumped out of the balcony and ran to the front and saw what was Jimi Hendrix's first Manhattan concert um, and saw an entire era just change like that. My memory of it is that the Rascals played four or five or six tunes and ran off stage. And if anybody out there can verify that, but that's my memory of it. <laughs> Every, you saw just everything just go like that. Nobody ever followed Jimi Hendrix ever again, to my knowledge, ever, anywhere in the world. Unbelievable. Man, that must have been so cool. It was, the sound was perfect. It was, it, was, it was fantastic. He was great. They sounded incredible. And the thing that I remember was climbing up to the balcony after Hendrix had gone off and we're talking and we're watching the crowd and people are just like, like Night of the Living Dead are going and stumbling towards the exits in shock. 
And that's why my memory of why the Rascals basically bagged it halfway into their set. People were streaming, just stumbling really towards the exits, just blown away, literally. Um, and did he sound like he sounds on recordings that I've heard, or did, was there another? He sounded there? exactly like the first album. That's how good it was. It, it was loud, but not over the top, and it was incredible. They weren't, like, too loud yet. It was, you know, the, the performance was fantastic, and, uh, and the sound was just superb. You know, it was one of those rare things That's I was lucky. Awesome. Yeah, what a great memory. That was Stuart Spector, one of my all-time favorite guys in the music industry. And as you can tell why, he is so full of life and he's very articulate. I really appreciate his description of listening to uh, Jimi Hendrix Live because I, even though I'm an old guy of the group here, I wasn't old enough to see Jimmy. Having Stuart convey to us what it was like in his words, I thought was really spectacular. I, you know, we can totally relate to that and he, we can picture it too. Everybody sort of walking around like zombies, I thought was a, a very, very descriptive way of, of telling us about that experience. So very, very cool. Uh, so that will conclude our podcast. But of course, before we leave you, as always, we like to share some final thoughts. So um, today's final thought will be for each of us to talk a little bit about a song that Jimmy has recorded that was meaningful, perhaps a favorite of each of us. So I would like to go first and talk about Castles Made of Sand. That was a song that was recorded uh, when I was one month old. Um, so I, uh, <laughs> I'd like to claim it. Um, I was alive for it. And, um, and Eddie Kramer, who we heard from earlier, was the engineer on that, on that tune. And there's a couple of things that really strike me about this song. One of which is, you know, when I was growing up in, in high school, I was, uh, very interested in the, uh, the early days, the pioneering days of hip hop music. And there are some sort of hip hop beats a little bit in this song. I don't want to say it's a predecessor, but there are, there are some clever, uh, percussion and even the way Jimmy sort of sings some of these words in a rhythmic way kind of remind me of what's to come. And I like that about this song and I like this about his career. To me, when we say somebody is, has this legacy and somebody is his legend, I mean, those words get thrown around all the time and it's neat when you can personalize it and say, Oh yeah, there we go. There's an example of something that I can listen to and say, oh, I wonder if that had an influence on this other thing. These two seem to be uh, related to each other. And I, I, I like that about music in general. And I've done that my whole life. And um, this song has always been one that, uh, that harkens to that early um, connection to me of those influences. And I, I like that. I, that's, and of course, I like the lyrics of this song too. Um, you know, it's sort of life's bitter ironies and, you know, not everything is happy. Um, but not everything is, you know, as gloom and doom. And there's something neat about the metaphors of reflecting on, you know, not taking things for granted, you know, not taking love and loyalty and friendship 
for granted because they may not always be there. And, and I also like the fact that I think after, uh, Jimmy passed away, his brother said this song was somewhat biographical, that he thought his brother wrote this about himself. And there's something neat about that too. We don't know for sure, but, um, I like thinking about that. So, um, I appreciate the opportunity of sharing my thoughts about Jimi Hendrix and some of these amazing interviews today. Really good thoughts there, Dan. I like, I like everything that you just said. <laughs> um, it was very difficult for me to pick just one song because there's just so many that stand out. But I decided to go with Third Stone from the Sun off of uh, Are You Experienced, which is just like, that is just my personal favorite Jimmy album. And that song stands out to me just because of how weird it is, yet how weird it isn't. Like, it, it just it gets really, really weird, and then it brings it all back. And it just seems to be... I don't know, because before I heard that song, I heard a lot of standard rock-type songs growing up, and then when I heard that, it's like, wait a minute, I didn't know you could do something like that. I thought everything had to be straight and, you know, chorus, verse. I didn't I didn't know you could have all these weird sounds and then bring it back, and it just makes you feel a certain way, and I think that is the most important thing in music. What about you, Ashley? Uh, well, I... My, I have actually two songs, but uh, <laughs> it's mostly, I know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Dan. <laughs> um, my two are a little traditional and obvious, but they're uh, Foxy Lady and Purple Haze, just for the fact that you can't hear those intros without just being completely immersed in the 60s and what he represented and that whole lifestyle and it's like i just feel like anytime you hear those opening riffs you just you know where you're at and you know where you're gonna go and uh you know it's just amazing that you can hear that and know uh you know just be transported into that era and that time frame uh especially as a love as a person who loves the 60s <laughs> as much as i do uh it's just quintessential so a little a little uh you know obvious maybe but uh, I just think it so perfectly encapsulates the time frame and just sends you there. Uh, so that's m- those are my two that I kind of cheated on. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> but uh, this concludes our uh, podcast today about Jimi Hendrix and honoring the legacy of him. And uh, you will hear from us in about two weeks. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino and Ashley Allison. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at nam.org.